0: Andrew and I have been thinking about like how we want to orient our lives, what kind of life that we want to live. And so like there's a lot of decisions that we make that I think encompass in, in, into our crafting of, you know writing a rule of life. One of the things that we do as a family is that four days a week, I mentioned this, our kids, don't watch any TV, they're not on any screens, they're not on anything like that. And then on, on the Thursday night, so Monday through Thursday, on Thursday night, we watch a family movie. together. That's kind of like the break the fast of the media fast for, for the week, but they understand this. And so this has been a longer journey, though, in that we really believe that part of being a thin place, or part of being one of these you know, people that lives out, seeing you know God just really immersed in the world, is that we have so much noise in our life, we have so much distraction, that it can be very difficult for us to be in this place of constant communion with God. How many of you feel like some distraction? And so I remember a couple years ago, we started trying to take measures to be, this is a few years back, we started trying to take measures to be a little bit more disciplined about not being as engaged on social media, not being as engaged in our phones, not being... And you know, as engaged on our, um, you know, on all that stuff, and and so I tried to get an old flip phone to you know I was like all right I'm ditching the iPhone do the flip phone and I lasted about 30 minutes (laughs) not because not because I needed internet or email or anything a thing like that but because a lot of pastoring and my business like requires me to text people and I don't know if you remember this but do you remember that uh, text used to come in as one separate entity at a time, and they weren't grouped by a contact. And so, like, you know, what I'm talking about. Yeah, like, okay. if you go look through your text, it, it'll say, "Oh, here's a text from Ryan," or "Here's a text from so and so." And I jumped back ten years, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like, I'm getting seventy texts a day, and I, this is actually making me more connected to my phone, not less <laughs> to my phone because I couldn't. So, anyways, I stopped that and. And then um, this, a couple of years ago, I started following this company that they saw this as a problem. So they wanted to develop a dumb phone that interacted with text and certain technological things in a, in a way that <coughs> basically the phone doesn't consume you, but it's still functional to that. And so they, they, they created this thing called the light phone. This is what, this is what it looks like. And uh, this phone literally has calling and texting. That's, that's what it has on it. But the texting is a little niftier than a 10-year-old thumb. And here is, uh, so so here here's the deal. I uh, like the, I love this this little deal right here. Let me see, where does it say? It says, appreciate your time. Life is right now. I mean, you can appreciate that. And so anyway, I've been. Plodding through trying to get my iPhone uh, I've been trying to get my iPhone like contacts and there's been some issues and the last couple weeks I the last couple weeks I I've actually like become more consumed by my phone it's like I was like looking through it, trying to figure out my contacts and all of a sudden I'm like I'm like going on Facebook, I'm going on, you know, I'm like looking up the maps, like every ten seconds and like like over over a period of a couple of weeks, Andrea looked at me like two nights ago and she goes, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like laying down with her and looking at my phone, like on the other side of her. I'm just being honest. And and she goes, You have gotten so addicted to your phone in like the last two weeks. I was like, oh my gosh, I have. And I say that to say it instantly, it instantly produced in me this like kind of sorrow and like pain of like how did I let myself give off a value that's deeply a part of my life? And and so I actually had this like I actually had this little moment of of repentance. Like, I'm like, okay, God, like, something is, I've allowed myself to get distracted, and as I've allowed myself to get distracted, I notice I'm less effective, I'm less engaged, I'm less, I'm less engaged with my kids. Like, everything becomes less good, less full, because, because I've allowed myself to be distracted. And we've just found that, for us, we talked about rule of life a couple weeks ago, and part of rule of life for us is that we, we value the presence of God. How many of you would say you value the presence of God? And so if we're the image bearers of our creator and we value the presence of God, which I don't know what's more significant in his image than that, then when we aren't present, we aren't reflecting his image. So there's something that has become disintegrated with my values and my actions. So, Anyway, I, I, I want to pause and say this. I don't have like a big I don't have a big big issue with social media, but I just want to make you aware of this. You know, maybe you haven't thought about it this way, but these these tech companies that are out there, whether it's Facebook or Google or Twitter or what, all the app companies, like there are billions and billions of dollars at stake for them grabbing your attention. Billions of dollars at stake. And let me tell you, they have the smartest, the best engineers, the, the best like, like psychological, people are analyzing this stuff. And like I have this value deep in my heart and two weeks of letting my guard down meant I got consumed by something. And so it's easy to say, oh, I can handle it. But, but I think like we first need to give ourselves a little bit of a break and second, we need to realize the systems that are behind things. It's, it's not necessarily that you don't have a strong will that you go back to your social media and check it 800 times a day. It's that, it's that these people make money on addicting you to what they're, what they're doing. You can process it. Yeah, yeah. And so like, I just wanna say that, that like, I don't have any problem with phones. But these phones, these things, are a microcosmic representation of the whole system of our culture, which is buying, it's it's buying for your attention. It wants, like, like, this thing wants your attention. So, back to being a thin place. You are going to be formed in your life. That's not a question. Like, it's not a question of whether you're being formed. It's just what are you being formed by? What are you being formed by? Are you being formed by what you're this distraction that you're engaging with? Or are you being formed by Jesus? Right? Because you're consuming something every day, day in, day out. You're you're being you're being formed. And choice is just who you're going to be formed by. So... I realized in this moment when I was when I was consumed by my phone, I realized that what sin is, more than anything, is that sin is a distraction from God. And mm-hmm. you might not think of looking at your phone too much as sin, but I do. Because I because I could see that it was distracting me from the things that are important. Now what, what is the consequence of sin? The the reason sin is an issue, what Scripture tells us, is that sin separates us from God. Right? That's the issue of sin, is that it separates us from God. And so when you think about life this way, the things that distract us are those things that separate us from God. That's what it means to be a disintegrated person, is that I have all this other stuff going on, but but I've allowed it to consume me and distract who I am. And so I'm going to talk to you today about why we need to live a life of repentance. Not just we need to have a crying moment of repentance at an altar call, but why we need to live a life of repentance. I was thinking all this week about what I wanted to share on and the Lord was like, well, you can always share out of your brokenness. And, like, for me, like, this is this is the point. Uh, if you have one thing that you take away home, is that you have to learn. You don't just repent one time. You actually have to learn how to posture yourself as a repentant person on a day-by-day basis. Yeah. Because every day, you will have things that will set not separate you salvifically or identity wise but will separate your consciousness and separate your presence from his presence you, are, are you tracking with me I'm not saying that he removes his presence I'm not saying he removes any part of himself to you but you start being formed by something else in your active separation does this make sense and so for me the goal of the gospel the goal of the gospel is to release a centrality of our life on the presence of God. A, a centralizing focus on God in our life. Like that's the goal. I want to read to you. I mentioned this scripture a few weeks ago, but I want to read it real quick. And this isn't the scripture we're going to land at, but I'm going to, I just think it's helpful. Um, Matthew 6, 19-24, it says this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rug... Moss and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moss and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now listen to this part. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. How many of you think it's important what we have our eyes fixed on to? If then light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No, watch this part. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one or love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So here, like, here's what, here's an important thing to know. This to me is what disintegration is. It's when I've chosen that there's this part of my life over here and this part of my life over here and this part of my life over here as opposed to recognizing that God is the master of all of my life. Colossians 3 actually speaks to those who are in slavery and he says, he says, even if you have a hard master you have a difficult, you need to remind yourself that there's only one person that you work for and that's God. So, so, Integration, centrality of focus is that every part of my life starts to be consumed with my my presence on his presence. Is this making sense? And so what we need to see here is that Jesus, they still got money, even though he says you cannot serve with God and money. I mean, if you know, like they had a guy who carried the money around. So you can't assume here that this means we can't have money. We just need to escape this money system and go hide in a forest. Like That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is that your life doesn't get to be compartmentalized, disintegrated. Your life is one thrust into Jesus. And that when I approach it this way, then I navigate from all of my spaces, abiding in him, walking with him, and being central on him. And so what, what sin is, is it simply put, sin is what sepsis, separates us from God and it makes us disintegrated. Yeah. It makes us people that are doing this thing over here and this thing over here and yeah. this thing over here and you have nine masters. Yeah. You can't have nine masters. Jesus says that. You can only have one. Does this make sense? The last two weeks, I didn't master this. This mastered me, right? If, like, I became the tool instead of this being the tool, that's actually the truth. Like, that's not even that's not even an exaggeration. You know, who I I, I listened to somebody, a spiritual uh, director talk about this. It's such an interesting thing to listen to because you like to think about the economics of this. Used to, with software, you were the uh, customer. And so it didn't matter whether they always had your attention, you would pay for something and then you would have it. You have to understand that you are not the customer. Advertisers are the customer. And so you are the tool. Right? Do you, you get what I'm saying? I, I'm trying to say to you that there's a, there's a world out there that it can be utilized you, by you or it can utilize you. And so this is not new in 2020. There have been distractions since the dawn of humanity. It's just what are the, the distractions of the day? And so if we are going to be these thin places, these places of deep integration, where the presence of God fills every part of our life, then what we have to learn to do is to be a people of repentance. Not just to be a people who repented one time, but be a people who are constantly vigilant, seeing the distractions, and I call them sin. I will call it sin, because I think we minimize what sin is. Like, seeing, like, if, I'm, if my kid is coming up to me saying, you've been on your phone all day and not playing with me, like, I think that <laughs> the thing has become a sin at some point. Right? Because I'm violating love. And so, <clears throat> take that. Thing. <laughs> so this is, this is I'm going to read a scripture, and I want to say that a life of repentance is is key to a life living in a centrality of focus. I feel like I've gotten repetitive over the last few months, but I feel like the Lord is like, we have to, we have to slow down and rest in Him in our lives and center our focus on Him. And that's anyway. All right, I'm going to read 2 Corinthians uh, seven five through eleven. And I read this one time last year, I believe. We're coming back to it. For when we came into Macedonia, Paul talking, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. That's such real talk. How many of you have ever liked conflicts on the outside, fear within? Like that, <laughs> that is such real talk from the Apostle Paul. <laughs> but God who comforts the downcasts comfort us by the coming of Titus. Good friend. And not only by his coming, but also by comfort that you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. Okay, so let's hear what's going on in Paul's talk. It's like, you hear, like, if you read Paul with a little bit of eyes open, we have to recognize that any letter, it wouldn't matter if it's the Bible or anything that we're reading that's from 2,000 years ago, as much as you think you're familiar with this, you've read it 800 times, you're a, you're a little bit of a foreigner here, like you're reading something that is many centuries and many cultures and many language languages away from us now. And so, but there are these moments where you see the humanity of these people, and he's like, "Man, I'm like, you know, basically what Paul is saying here is like, man, it's hard. I got, I got fear within, and he essentially says, I was sad and 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 nervous because I thought I was too harsh with you." I thought I was. I thought I had said something that had made you sorrowful to the point that it would be harmful to you. And then he's like, "But a friend came and told me that 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 really hard letter I sent to you it, it produced a little sorrow for a little while, but it actually produced this fruit of righteousness and repentance. And so now I'm not sorrowful. I'm actually happy. Like I'm like imagine like Paul like out there doing his thing and it's really rough time. And he's like. Oh man, I really screwed up on that thing with the the Corinthian people. Like, I was a little harsh, you know. And like, how many of you ever have that scripting anxiety where you're like, man, that interaction with that person, I don't know, I don't know if that was good. But then it's like, it doesn't matter whether it was, you know. Because I don't know if this is talking about First Corinthians. Some people think this is talking about another letter. Um, but it, it ends up not mattering because God actually intended to produce something in them. And so while he's in this really tough place, he has this anxiety released and he's like joyful because these friends and family of his are actually living out a fruitful life in God and, and he got to help them out a little bit, like hooray. And are you with me? So like why are we talking about, I'm going to stop. so he's excited about this repentance. Why are we talking about repentance? I do believe that it's a key thing. I want to give you, before I go further into this text, I want to give you a few, three reasons why I'm talking about independence. Firstly, many of us in my age group, and, and my parents' age group, in fairness, this was a long process, like, grew up in a time where the church was, where God was moving the church out of legalism. Like, Like, if you look back at the foundation of the uh, the denomination that I grew up in, in Pentecostalism, and if you look out of all the holiness denominations, I mean, you had, you know, early honest days. It's like, well, can we can we attend a movie or have a TV? We don't need to have, you know, we don't need to wear pants. Like women, like don't need to wear pants. We don't need makeup. We don't need all these things. It was like, it's like there was all these rules created, and don't think for a second though that God wasn't working with these people. Because that is ignorance. <laughs> I like just, you know, like I listen to the stories that my Mimo Papel tell me, and I'm like, wow, God was working in amazing ways. But God is, as Ephesians four tells us, always working on His church and perfecting it and bringing it into His image. And so, one of the things that's happened it's not the only thing that's happened, but in the last hundred years, is the church has been emerging out of legalism. And so there were a whole lot of talks on repentance in many of the churches that maybe you grew up in or, you know, like, it's like every week it's like, we've got to repent for some sins. It's like, do I have some sins I need to come down for? I don't know. Maybe I do. You know, it's like when the kids, the kids would get saved like 72 times in church because like, I don't know, like, you know, this okay? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Um. People felt anxiety about their salvation and their identity in Christ. How I many of you can relate to that? People felt like anxious, like, am I okay? Like, and so, so the church is em- emerging out of that. Here's, the things that. here's the thing that happens, though. If you look back in history, every move of God, every Reformation, every doctrinal change that was made for the better, in those times we also left things behind and missed things that once were valued. That's not unique to this day. That's every time that we've ever seen. As God is changing his church, it's like, we'll go over here and emphasize this thing. And in this emphasis, we lose something of value, something that's treasured. And so I think over the last 20, 30, 40 years, we've had increasing talk about the love and the goodness of God, which, I mean, that's like the fountainhead. That's where it all starts. But we've also had a a diminishing willingness to be accountable and to be willing to be repentant of sin and to even talk about these things. And like, I can even like look at this in my own theology as it, as it has changed and been shaped. And, but how many of you can recognize the pattern, the trajectory I'm talking about? Okay, second reason is that I want to talk about repentance. And I mentioned this last year, I think in a sermon. If not, I might get to restate it tonight. I know I've mentioned this to some people. There, there is a teaching out there that says, you don't need to feel bad for your sin. You don't need to feel sorrow. You need to have consciousness of God and that is what will produce life. Okay. I agree that consciousness of God is what produces life. But the scripture tells us that also godly sorrow leads to repentance. And now here's the thing. I was, i I've listened to these folks that teach this, and I actually admire a lot of them. But one of the things I started thinking about as I learned psychology, I realized that, do you know what they describe, how they describe a person who does not feel remorse for what they do? They describe that person as a psychopath. Like, that's technically what it is. And it was like, I I was listening to a sermon one day, and I thought, We're raising Christian psychopaths. (laughs) Like we're teaching people that what we need to do is encounter the loving father and we don't need consciousness of our sin. We need consciousness of the loving father, but we need a sorrowful consciousness of our sin when it comes into our life. It's not the kind of sorrow that lingers on you forever and ever and debilitates you. It's the kind of sorrow that produces an actual repentance. Like, there is nowhere in Scripture that you can say that this is God's prescription to sin. Don't feel bad. Just talk about how loving I am. It is not a prescription in Scripture. And it's psychologically, like, like the opposite of what's healthy. Are you with me? Yeah, Yeah. So, and you know what it is this is the hidden thing is it's actually shame that won't allow us to see our sin it's shame that prevents us from grappling with the with the actual implications of our sin so it's this like this un, this teaching that's like don't be in shame but the prescription is actually shame oriented like, oh my gosh, if you grapple with this, you might, you might think about if you're losing your salvation. Your it's like none of that's on the table. Third reason is that repentance leads us back to a point of integration where his presence is central in our lives. So let's look at verse 10. It says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Okay before I talk about the repentance part, let me make this point. Like, when we think of salvation, we don't really understand from, this is a faith that emerged out of, out of uh, the Hebrew culture and the Hebrew way of understanding things. You know, and when the Hebrews would think of salvation, they are certainly not thinking of a moment at an altar call where you pray a prayer. Okay, the Hebrews trust. When you read the Psalms, the Hebrews are looking for the salvation of God every single day. I'm not talking about God are you for me. I'm not talking about their eternal standing after this life. I'm saying that they every day they go, God, I need you. I need your saving work in my life. I need your saving work to be a parent. I need your saving work. Because the Philistines are coming in here trying to kick our butt. Like, like they experience the salvation in life in a much more holistic way than one prayer. Is this is this making sense? And so when it, when this verse says, repentance at least is salvation, this is not saying, this is not saying that that one-time deal that you repent for the for the last time and forever and now you got saved, this is not what it's talking about. Like, so I just want to point that out there. So I I got interested in repentance a couple years ago when I was listening to a psychologist from Harvard who is not a Christian talk about a book that she had written called Emotional Agility. And she's talking about this book, and I've suggested the book to people, and it was like the Amazon's most suggested book one year, and... She, she uh, wrote this book very much for normal people. And she was talking about emotions and, our, and utilizing our emotions as data rather than drivers. How many of you have this feeling of, uh, you know, like you get sad and you go eat something, or you get, you know, like there are things that you do quickly that like some people, like with, with people who are physiologically addicted to things, As soon as they some emotion triggers them they run to whatever that addiction is but we all have these things we all have emotions that drive us in certain way and the way this works in the brain is that there these neural synapses grow really close in the brain and that as soon as this emotions fire then the next one is instantly fired and so whenever we talk with addicts we think how can you not stop this? But there, those synapses are so connected that there's not even one, like the, it's one pathway. As soon as that trigger hits, they're doing X. And so we can't really fully comprehend that. And so I'm, I, I'm saying also say she started talking about using our emotions as data. And the way that she explained this is that when you start feeling something and maybe you have a typical response, you get, you get sad or you try to do this thing, you try to do that thing, what she was saying is stop and listen to what you're feeling. Your emotions actually aren't bad. They're not good or bad. They're neutral things. They're data. Does this make sense? Yeah. And so like that's that like there might be some, I'm using a, a term that she used, we wouldn't use this term, but there might be some guilt that's going on. And you're feeling like a bad, you know, feeling like a bad mom. And she's saying, what might be happening if you stop and observe yourself and go, okay, there's that emotion. I'm feeling this. You start asking questions. Firstly, what happens is the neural synapses in your brain physically separate apart. Secondly, what happens is is you find out you might have this unhealthy script in you that's just telling lies about yourself. The other thing you might find out is You've actually violated a core conviction of yours. So it might be one of the two. When I started to feel, when Andrew said, you've been, you've been addicted to your phone, I went, oh my gosh, that makes me feel bad. What am I going to do with that statement? <laughs> like, well, you, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I did? I thought for like a second, and I was like, yeah, you're right, and I feel bad because I'm violating a conviction of myself. Do you see what happened there? My identity was not at stake. My salvation was not at stake. I wasn't questioning the goodness of God. I wasn't questioning my own value. I wasn't questioning the whole of life. I just stopped and thought, yeah, I violated a value. That's why I feel bad. Does this make sense? So I'm, I'm listening to her talk about this and I thought one of the most dangerous things that we can do to our own souls and our minds is to disintegrate our convictions with our emotions. To try to sit there and just say, okay, like, I've done this really awful thing but God is good, I'm okay. That, what you're doing is that over time you're numbing The response that you get, and you're and then you're just proclaiming the goodness of God and you're wiring your brain to be deficient. And and what I believe is the healthy way to go about it is to stop and to go, God, you're good. I'm gonna be okay if I'm in the wrong. But help me see where I'm in the wrong so I can repent. Does this make sense? Okay, I want to talk about the conscience for one minute. Jeremiah 31, 3, 33 says this. this. This is Jeremiah, one of the most clear pictures in the Old Testament of what the new covenant will be like as compared to the old covenant. He says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put that, my law on the, in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their, go- their God and they will be my people. So one of the most significant transitions from the old covenant in the new covenant, what we talked about on week one, was that God had Israel fabricate the Holy of Holies. How I many of you know what I'm talking about? He gave them a place that was a m- metaphorical and a tangible representation of heaven on earth. And so. When Jesus died, what happens to that veil? Tears it. God tears apart the thing that he constructed for his people to encounter him because he was now introducing for them a better way. So instead of now, what, what would happen in the Holy of Holies is that the sins and the issues of the people would be deliberated about and they would be dealt with in this place. And there were physical sacrifices that all of the nation could participate in by bringing as a visual representation of what God was doing. And so all of this is telling a story and these people are participating, entering into the Holy of Holies and doing this. Now here is what Jeremiah says. I am no longer going to deliberate inside a tent with my people. I'm gonna deal with them in their heart. And so, what happens is, is the expansion of your conscience is a sign of maturity. The expansion and the growth of your conscience is a sign of maturity. And what we have often made a sign of maturity is, is that you don't feel bad about your sin anymore. That is not maturity. What maturity is, is never being able to question for one second that he is good, that I'm in his covering, that I'm in his love, that he will not leave me, and that simultaneously my conscience is, is expanding so that I am walking more and more and more like him. Because he's not just doing it in a tent, he's doing it in here and in here. So you know what, like when I was in, uh, this might be later in the notes, but who cares. Um, <laughs> This is a relational versus ritual repentance. Do you see what I'm saying? We don't have a ritual repentance because every time I repent of something, I'm not coming back into the salvation of God. His salvation has never left me. I don't need to ask for forgiveness so that I'm okay in my eternity. I ask for forgiveness because God wants me to have life and life abundantly. And if I walk away from distraction, then I have more abundant life. So when I was... I'm just going to share it now. Um, When I was in high school, it's like the only thing any small group talked about for, for young men is like, are you looking at pornography? It's like, we're going to pray, talk about the Bible for two minutes, and then the rest of the session is 45 minutes of how's the pornography thing. Like, I'm saying this jokingly, but how many of you... Like, it's like literally the only thing, the the only discipleship of guys. is like, all right, we're going to get you to read and pray for five minutes a day, and how's your pornography doing? Like, that's just like the problem of the day. And so I'm thankful that that is not an issue of mine right now. I'm very thankful that that, that God has delivered me from that. And there are things that I feel sorrowful for now that I did not feel sorrowful for then. Last year, I told this story. I walked into Trader Joe's, and I had a I really distracted day. I wasn't focused on God. I was, I was doing something, and this, this lady was interacting with, you know, she was ch- checking out the, the stuff. And she's telling me a story. And I, I, she did pause, but I kind of just walked away. And she goes, oh, okay, well, have a good night. And it tore my heart. I, I literally walked out in the car and I, I, I was like, God, like, I have missed it today. Because I was not present with this woman in love. When I was 20 years old, I would not have felt bad about that. Are you seeing what I'm saying? The goal of your Christian life is not to rid yourself all bad feeling. The goal of the Christian life is to look more like Jesus. And as you mature, your conscience expands to the point that this is no longer my issue. But like Smith Wigglesworth, and I'm not saying this could be, there could be some shame in this. And it's, it's Sometimes it's hard to tell. It's, it's only your heart that can know. But Smith Wigglesworth once got outside and wept on the ground because he hadn't mentioned the name of Jesus in his speech in 30 minutes. I'm like, Okay, I don't know if that's healthy or not, but that's definitely a sign of something different than I'm walking in. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, life in the journey of God is like, man, every time you mature, His grace is always present, but He also gives us the ability to feel over things that we didn't feel before. And that's because you're growing, not because you're diminishing. I could not disagree more with the teaching that I mentioned before. So OK, what's worldly sorrow look like? Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. but worldly sorrow, worldly sorrow brings death. Well, first of all, worldly sorrow brings death, right? Like I love the fact that Paul delineated between these two things and he put this in here and he said there's two different kinds of things. Because I would say that worldly sorrow is something like shame. You know, like I heard a counselor once say, and I I totally disagree with the statement, but I think the statement is enlightening for us. He said, I think that love is the most powerful thing in the universe, but he said, I think the close second is shame. And I was like, any of close second, it's infinitely behind. But But you understand what the counselor is saying, right? How many of you have been affected by shame? Shame will not produce life. That is what worldly sorrow looks like. And the reason that people are so attracted to this this type of teaching is because what they're trying to get away from is the worldly sorrow that is shame producing death in their lives. It's like, I... am I have got to get out of this cycle where I'm constantly shaming myself. I'm constantly in sorrow about myself, and 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 like this is this is unhealthy. See, shame brings you death, but godly godly sorrow is in your consciousness. Go up is growing. When I was Okay, hold on one second here. Okay, godly sorrow, this is the best way to think about it. Godly sorrow speaks of your value and your worth being more than your present action. That's good. Does that make sense? That's good. So, like, when, the, when Susan David, the psychologist, was talking about um, this emotional agility, she's saying, you might be writing a, a script about yourself that's false, or you might have violated a conviction that's deeper than that action. Do you see, like, what she's saying is, you've actually found that you're better than that thing that you're doing. Yeah, that's good. Godly sorrow means that you are seeing that your value exceeds the present behavior that you're operating in. Your identity is actually far beyond that. Worldly sorrow is using your actions in in shame and sorrow to prove that your lack of value and identity. This is the easiest way I know how to delineate. Is that like when I have this thing going on inside of me because I've done something wrong. And it tells me that I'm worthless or that I'm valueless or that. That my, something is affect my identity is affected, I know that that is worldly sorrow. That's shame. When I feel bad because I know I'm better, that's godly sorrow. Does, is this translating? Like, I, godly sorrow releases you, worldly sorrow isolates you. Worldly sorrow makes you do this, and godly sorrow—I mean, let me read back the scripture at the end. Look at this. See what this godly sorrow is producing to you: what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. That's what it looks like for godly sorrow to be present in your life. Oh, heck no! Like I'm not going to be that way. Like I'm better than that. Like this God has marked my life. Like if if all of a sudden you're just like. You know I'm, that don't participate with that spirit. That's an evil spirit. That's, right. That's good. So good. The goal of the Christian life isn't to get rid of, the, of what we think of are the bad feelings. The goal is to look more like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And sorrow can play a part in that. Okay. I want, I want to highlight one quick verse because it just ties into everything. It says, look at this. It says, see what God and the was is producing to you, what earnestness, what eagerness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. Clear yourselves. I read this in several different passages, <coughs> of several different translations. Like, clear yourselves to make things clear. This is to me the best way to tie back in that verse in Matthew that repentance brings me to a place where now my eyes are full of light I've I've cleared myself I don't no longer have this integration, I don't no longer have this distraction, actually acknowledging your sin is a part of integration to acknowledge that this is a part of you and you bring it before God, that's a part of getting whole To not acknowledge it is a path to disintegration. It's a path to a divided house within you. It's a path to hiding parts of you. And I don't want to hide anything from, from God. And so whenever I repent, I am going, I'm clearing the path. For God to move in me. I am, I am with my eyes clear and set on him. It doesn't mean that the sin is necessarily 100% gone. It just means I know it's there. I'm, I'm presenting it to God. I can feel that he's producing something in here. And God help me walk through this. No longer am I distracted. I, no longer am I separated in my consciousness. But now I'm connected in my consciousness to the presence of God. Yep. Because all of me is before him. Clear, and I cleared the way for him. This is the way Hebrews 1-3 describes, you know, it talks about it as an elementary principle. It says, therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. So, like, I, I love that people will quote this verse and like, oh, we just shouldn't talk about those things. I'm like, man, come on. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that he's come to a place with this community that they're progressing to greater things. But God still has us return to the simple things. He's saying we... I, I have to move beyond that. You guys should have grown up by now. I've got to move beyond that and talk to you. But that does not mean that God does not return us to simplicity at times and seasons. This was the season that this, church, that this church was in at the time. Okay? Are you with me? And, but here's what it says. It says, repentance from dead works. I'm going to tell you what is included in dead works. It's a lot more than what you just think of as obvious sin. You could be doing things that are church things, that are Christian things. You could be doing things that are family things, personal things. You could have developed your own, this is the way I do things. And those works are producing death. Does this make sense? Looking at my phone is not obviously a sin. But as it consumes me, it becomes a work that produces death. Maybe you have to pray five hours a day, and if you don't pray five hours a day, you won't feel like you're okay. That might be a work that produces death. I mean, like that. I don't. I'm just saying. I think it's possible. There there are many things that are works that produce death, and I can't sit here and list them all out. You know them in your spirit, what they are in your life. I know that sitting there on the phone as much as I did, not that I can't have my phone, not that I don't need to make calls or texts or anything. It's not that I have to live like a monk. It's that I know when I've crossed the line with God, and I know it's not okay. Does this make sense? I remember... You know, sitting, I think, I don't know if I've told this, it's kind of a funny story. I remember, I like, as Toby mentioned in his wedding, I also too like to take baths. And so I was going to take a bath one day, sit in the hot water, and I felt the Lord, I heard the Lord's voice say, I want you to take some Oreos to go eat and eat an Oreo. (laughs) Amen. Okay. So I sit down in the bath as for the Lord's commands, <laughs> with my Oreos and milk, and I eat the Oreos and milk. This was actually, I actually, I went to the bath because I felt that God told me, go to the bath and take it, and eat some Oreos. i like, okay. Ever seen that. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> and anyway, I sat down there, and the Lord was like, what value does this have for you, this Oreo? I was like I mean it brings some enjoyment it doesn't have much nutritional value here's what he said it's not the main part of your diet is it Okay. so then then the Lord brought me to I sometimes drink wheatgrass he brought me to remembering the wheatgrass the Lord was like What value does the wheatgrass have? I was like, well, only nutritional value, zero enjoyment. (laughs) And he said, it's not the main part of your diet, is it? Do do you see what I'm saying? That God God can utilize things that are only just perfectly beneficial for you, and he can be in things that are just pure fun and enjoyment. For you. And it's okay. It's okay to have a good time. You know, it's okay to get on social media. It's okay to like do all those things. It's also okay to pray seventy-two hours a day. Well you could do seventy-two. <laughs> <laughs> In the natural and the balance is different for everyone. But either side, obsessing over either side, can produce death. Are are you tracking with me? I'm saying when the scripture says repent of dead works, repent of dead works, things that lead to death. Like God is calling us to repent of (coughs) things that aren't just obviously sin. And that is how your conscience grows. As you go, oh, you know what? I'm not okay with treating that woman who is checking checking out the groceries for me as just the as just the grocery checker out of that night. I'm not okay with that. That's that's <coughs> my conscience expanding. Okay, so I'm gonna finish with this. Part of being integrated is not, it's not just having no dead works. In your life, it's having a posture of repentance from dead works. It is not, it, I'm, I'm believing that God can expand my righteousness to fullness in this life. But it is, it's not about assuming that I'm going to be okay. It is about having a posture that you, that you are continually in a place of, God, examine me. And so that I can be repentant And continually coming back to you And so I'm going to finish I'm going to tell you the question I'm going to finish with I'm going to finish with I'm not going to lead anybody in repentance prayer tonight Not a single person Because <laughs> I don't think it's helpful to you It is not helpful For you to need Me as the pastor To give an altar call two times a year About things that you should repent of And then you repent of them What would be helpful, and here's my question is, how do I integrate a life of daily repentance? Because you don't need me. You need this integrated into your life. Amen? Amen. And so, Ash Wednesday, we are going to utilize that as a time of examine. And we get to do that every year. And maybe we'll cancel it one year if we the Holy Spirit says too. But we do that because we get to say at least one time a year, probably more, we value stopping to wait on God to see what might be in our heart that we're unaware of and to let Him speak to our conscience. Because Him speaking to our conscience is the expansion of who we are in Him. You with me? All right. I want to have you stand. No, sit. We'll say sit. I want to have you uh, close your eyes. I'm not not asking you to find what it is that you need to repent of. I'm not asking you to come crying at the altar. We need a better way to think about repentance. What I'm asking you to do is ask this question of the Lord. How do I integrate a life of daily repentance? How do I integrate?